0: Welcome to this week's Fromer's Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. As always, it's a delight to be with you. And we have a special show today because it is Mother's Day. So my second guest is going to talk about the grandmother part of that equation. She is Anastasia Miari, and she's written a wonderful book called Grand Dishes, Recipes and Stories from Grandmothers of the World. And it's It's a beautiful, beautiful, not only a cookbook, but a a book that tells you about these women's lives and their communities and and brings the world to your kitchen. But we're going to talk moms in this first segment, and who better to do that with than Samantha Brown. You may know her from the Travel Channel or from her more recent show, Places to Love, which is on PBS. So welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Samantha.
1: Pauline, so great to be here. It's great connecting with you for the first time (laughs) in a long time, time, I should say. We connect a lot, but...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And I don't know how many of our... I'm sure all of our listeners know you, but I don't know if many of them know that you're a mom. So when did you become a mom and uh, what do you have?
1: I became a mom in 2013. I have a set of twins, boy and a girl, Ellis and Elizabeth, and they are a little over eight right now. And have they ever appeared on any of your shows? They appeared on our show in Oregon where we rented an RV, which is definitely a fun family kind of bucket list trip oh, yeah. and we went through the the eastern uh side of Oregon. So yes, they have been on TV.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> did they like it? Did it all work out?
1: Yeah, yeah, it did. I mean they, they don't really care, right? They don't they don't right. care about yeah. cameras. They got just got to live their their perfect little fun lives and and we we, we worked around them, right? So they <laughs> It became their schedule and uh, (laughs) they were, they were four at the time. So they were pretty young, but they haven't been on camera since. So how did, I mean, you're beyond being a a TV host. You're
0: also an inveterate traveler. How did having kids uh, change you as a traveler? Did it clip your wings at all or did it make you soar higher to to make that cliche, even more cliche?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love cliches. I, it it definitely clipped my wings in the beginning. I was one of those people who gave how to travel with children advice before I had kids, and boy was I wrong! I was wrong about <laughs> everything. You can't possibly really? realize how challenging it can be. I, I tr- started traveling with them when they were two months old, and mm-hmm. um, you know, luckily they've come with me. Not they they haven't been on the episodes, but they've traveled with me to Asia and Europe and. So they're very good travelers, but boy, does it take a lot of, of patience. It, it really, you know, it's going from, um, you know, being a traveler myself and really knowing what to do and, and feeling professional and like, I'm confident in something. And then as you know, Pauline, you know, you put kids in there and boy, do you feel like an amateur every minute of the day? (laughs) So it's very humbling but it's absolutely recommended that you do it. Travel with kids, travel with your grandkids. The payoff is so great. So I, it clipped my wings in the beginning. I had to write myself and realize I wasn't invincible and didn't know it at all. And that they actually had things to teach me about, um, about how to travel better. And once Hmm. I did kind of got on board with them when I travel with them, you know, when I'm not traveling with them, it's different, but um, then I was able to um, travel in a different way and in a better way. I think, though, the well,
0: the biggest trip I took with my daughter, or my first big trip, my older daughter, was we went to Japan, of all places, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I overpacked. I just assumed there wouldn't be any baby goods in Japan, so I had this <laughs> huge, heavy suitcase filled with everything. And then when I got to Japan, I found out that the word for wet wipe was wetto tissue <laughs> and uh, a diaper was diapa uh, that it, I really didn't have to be as freaked out as I was, although she never got on Japanese time. We, we were exhausted the entire <laughs> trip because it was hard to get her on the local time. But what do you think was the worst piece of advice you had been giving pre-children? Uh, that that you learned was wrong post children.
1: Oh boy, that's that's a great question. Um, I think I got it all wrong. Um, <laughs> I, I think one thing you know when you don't have kids is that you just think that you know, oh there's going to be challenges and you just get through them. But I think one thing that I was a, I could do now that I was a mom is to really understand people. When when you said you know it's exhausting and yeah. that sort of. Yeah. Just that acknowledgement, you know, because we all see the social media posts and the pictures and they bring it out and everyone's happy. And and that is maybe, you know, one hour of that day and yeah. 23 other hours were just tragic. And so I think it's just <laughs> that that sort of like, you know, commiserating with other fellow parents that you, you lighten up, right? You realize you're all in the same boat, that it shouldn't be as tragic as you took it. And you know these are things that you laugh about. So I think it was just not even having experience to say this is going to be tough. Yeah. Um, and you probably even aren't going to enjoy most of it, but oh, you will in the end. And then all of a sudden things will click, and it, it'll just feel like the biggest breakthrough of your lives. And just be there for it, and just give yourself a break. I guess is is what I want to yeah, always impart on people. It's just. Don't take it too seriously. Don't take it too seriously. I know it's it's terrifying walking
0: onto an airplane with a baby for the first time because you get such looks of deep hatred, I found, because people don't want to be on the plane with a baby who they worry will be will be crying.
1: But Yeah, once- I always say that people love a pregnant woman. They hate a mom. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. when I was pregnant, they gave me the world. Everyone loved me when I was pregnant, but as soon as I had those two kids, oh, you're so right. The judgment comes out, and uh, but I do have a tip for that that dreaded airplane sure. uh, boarding process. And for me, uh, and we're well out of it. Of course, you know that you get the pre-board, which everyone wants, mm-hmm. and if, for kids two and under. And I always avoided it. I mm. we never boarded our kids during the pre-board. My partner, my husband would go in first with all, he would use the pre-board to load everything in, the car seats, the luggage. And I would wait until the very last person of the very last row. And that's when we walked on. And really that just gives, you know, if you do the pre-board, you're going to be sitting for a good 45 minutes at least before that plane actually. So you have to think about that. Yep. And then also, and, and maybe you disagree, but but I find that the boarding process of a flight is the most stressful part of any trip. It's just yes. people are are people are just mean to each other adult wise and they're shoving yeah. their bags overhead and there's so much tension in that, you know, 45 minutes. And a, a young child absorbs that they absorb that emotion and that's when they release it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you get to a cruising altitude of thirty thousand feet. Right. That's why that baby is crying because yeah. They've had to take in so much. So don't even go there.
0: You are so right. You know, and I think the the kids pick it up from the parents too. Mm -hmm. If you are taking in those glares and getting more stressed, they're going to pick it up from you and be even worse. And that's why... Now that I have teenagers, I don't have babies anymore. Whenever I see a mom come on, I smile, I compliment Mm -hmm. her, I try to make, I I play peekaboo seat to Mm -hmm. seat. If there's a baby in front or behind me, I try to make sure that that mom is as, feels as welcomed as possible because I know I'll have a less cry free flight if I do, if I, if I you know, I'm kind and can make that the vibe around me, everybody will be happier.
1: But. That's so true. You're absolutely right. Make make the mom or the, the, the partner or the or dad. Whoever's there feel, feel okay. Right. And then, and you're so, cause they're picking up your stress. They're so, right. they're just little receptors. Those kids, they know exactly when you've had it and they'll have it too. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. So we've talked about the difficult parts. Of traveling with kids, and we've just scratched the surface. <laughs> I, I always, I always told people. Until they're around six, go where you want to go because when they get older they're gonna have real ideas about it but maybe not six maybe five or four at, up until that age you could you can you don't have to go to the kitty places later on they'll get really angry at you if there isn't something <laughs> for them I find <laughs> That just maybe my kids I don't know
1: but um, yeah I think okay, go ahead. No, no. What was the question? Sorry. Oh, well,
0: that's all right. So I was going to ask. So we've been talking about the bad parts of it. What are the good parts? Why is it so worthwhile to travel with your kids?
1: Oh boy. I, I just, you know, it, it just, it comes back again and again. I, they'll, they'll talk about trips they took when they were three years old. We went to, really? we did wow. a California, yeah, we, we did a California road trip. Biggest mistake of my life, changing hotels every night with two, three-year-olds. <laughs> oh my <know>. goodness. <laughs> Dang it staying at the Madonna Inn, which is total stone. Like, you know, you're, you're talking about you you about can't child proof your way out of that. And uh, so, uh, but um, there were, I was just, I just remember being exhausted, but they, well, they still to this day talk about the elephant seals and going to see the redwood forests for the mm-hmm. first time. You know, we took them to Europe, which uh, I didn't think they might enjoy because you're right. They, they, it, it doesn't have the obvious children's you know, theme parks or whatever, but they love the playgrounds and they still talk about the playgrounds in Hmm. in Vienna. And um and the way we um got them into eating Viennese food is we said they have the largest chicken nuggets in the world, which is, you know, (laughs) chicken schnitzel. Like we see it. And still to this day when my son orders chicken nuggets, he's like, can we have the schnitzel? You know (laughs) (laughs) So I they're so um they're, um, they know how to use the subways and, and, and I, you know, they're New York kids as well. So they understand people and, and different energies and being able to go to a playground and, and communicate and have fun with kids who don't speak your language. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't speak their language. And so it just, it just keeps coming back. Just these really, they just acclimate. And I think that's a part of travel, which is so important is, is that things are not going to go as you expect, but that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're going wrongly, right? You go with the flow, you go with the adventure and, and that type of adaptability is so learned when you travel. And especially as a young kid, it's, it's invaluable. So they learn incredible lessons from it. But I think also
0: the travel experience in certain ways is shifted for the better It has been for me on that same trip to Japan you know when I've been to Japan before that trip and since it's it can be hard to meet people uh, the, the Japanese are incredibly mm. kind to outsiders but they're a little formal I've found they, mm-hmm. they, <laughs> with a baby every door was opened they they so loved our little girl like Everywhere we went, there were yells of kawaii, which means cute, Mm. and genki, which means feisty, and people (laughs) would come up to us and wanted pictures with us, and it was a very different, much friendlier, more open experience than I've had in Japan before or since. Have you found that
1: different doors open when you travel with the kids? Yeah, that, you know that's such a good point. Um, it is an entryway for other people to realize that you're a human being, right? yeah. um, that you have this a child, uh, I think. And also the pride they feel that not only are you there as an adult, but you've brought your children. You've brought what means the most to you in this world, and you want to expose them to other places—not just you know foreign places like Japan, but even other places in in the United States. They, they people really love that. I feel like that's. Um, uh, just uh, an affection that people respond to uh, immediately. And yeah, there, there has always been when we're, when we're traveling and it's really for work, people are, are you bringing the kids because we'll plan a whole thing, you know, the, you know, ideas of what you can do with your children. So there's a real open arms with that. And I find that especially, you know, here in, in the United States, um, you know, restaurants don't really like children to be there, especially mm-hmm. in New York City. And in Europe, it's totally different. You know, kids share the same space as adults. You know, we go to the, the wine gardens. We go to the beer gardens. Um, I think it like depends said, like where the, in
0: Europe, though. That they're, they're not so friendly. Right? To, yeah, well, they're not so friendly to little kids in Paris.
1: <laughs> I okay. All right. Love it. They're but they're not but so friendly maybe. with the big kids either. <laughs> Yeah,
0: (laughs) but maybe (laughs) Germany and definitely Italy. Italy, we had incredible experiences of waitresses saying, oh, let me hold the baby for you while you eat. We're like, okay, yeah, (laughs) take the baby. (laughs) Take
1: the baby, definitely. Um, And, and, you know, you can impart so much knowledge to kids. Like I remember in Europe, there aren't children's menus. There are not chicken nuggets and French fries. Like you eat what your parents eat. And so- it, it opens the door to, to having them experience that as well. Like, no, you're not going to get like a little cheeseburger here. You're going to eat what mom eats. And right. isn't that cool? So, you know, and they're so young that wherever we've traveled, whether it was Switzerland or Germany, we found public parks and public pools. And because Europe seems so, um, I, I feel family friendly in that respect. There's so many public spaces that don't cost a lot of money to be a part of really great environments. And we've just hung out with people in their neighborhoods and in their in their playgrounds and have mm-hmm. just had a
0: great time. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, speaking of a great time, people have a great time when they watch your shows, especially the most recent one, which is called Places to Love. Tell me, where is it with the pandemic? I mean, uh, have you been able to film new episodes? What can people watch? Where can they watch it? What's been happening?
1: Yeah, so we were able to film five new episodes for this season, which is airing now uh, on your local uh, PBS stations. You can also view it, stream it directly from my website, samantha-brown.com. But um, it's public television show. But we were able to get five episodes out. We shot two in the thick of the pandemic. You know, Mm. uh, just absolutely using all the protocols in place, the safety protocols. The numbers were down. We knew the time was right. We knew that that window was closing, and that if we shot, then we would be able to get a few uh, episodes out of it. And we did. And so um, season five is airing now. And I leave for I'm sorry, season four is airing now, and I leave to start shooting season. Five next week. Um, wow. A, a lot of, yeah, I'm really excited. Eight episodes we're going to shoot all throughout the summer. Uh, we're starting out in Asheville, North Carolina, going up oh, to the Finger gorgeous. Lakes. Yeah, uh, heading out to Colorado, uh, really staying in the United States, of course. Yeah, um, but. Makes sense. You know, really excited. Yeah, really excited about the, the, the vaccine. Everyone we've talked to is vaccinated, so we get to have real conversations and, uh, you know, not with a mask or 10 feet apart for for a short amount of time so it's um it's a good time to be traveling and doing what we're doing
0: absolutely absolutely oh that's exciting all right we have to all watch places to love and you did something that was very child-friendly which i think is not surprising since you're our mom kind of at the start of the pandemic when everybody was pulling their hair out trying to teach their children at home you put out really kid-friendly study guides to some of the episodes
1: of your TV show, and they were absolutely delightful. Can you tell our listeners about those? Oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, I remember when I did a show called Passport to Europe, so many people told me that their like social studies and geography teachers played my episodes to their classrooms. And I was like, what? I had no idea wow. that I was being used in, in a sort of an educational way. And so when the pandemic happened, I thought, huh, how do I uh, help? Right. And we all need a break. And certainly being on public television, um, these are episodes that are appropriate for every single age. There is nothing inappropriate that you have to worry about. But we do bring up great um, themes, talks and just who people are. And so it's not just like where you go and and what they should know about this place and this place. It's who you meet. And that's what I feel so strongly about travel. It's about meeting people, people who live different lives than you. And we don't have to fear that, but we should know more about it. And so to use my study guide in terms of opening children's eyes up to what travel can be, as well as at a time where, you know, this is during a time where we were cut off from socializing with people, even our loved ones we couldn't get together with. I thought that, you know, if we approach the study guide from this respect of, of really understanding people's effort and what makes people tick and in, in that's how you what you discover when you travel, um, it would be a real benefit. And then again, and then, of course, a parent could watch the same show and love it. I certainly was watching all the shows. I was like, please, no more, please. <laughs> I can't watch another one of these animated shows without mm. pulling my hair out. So I thought, well, maybe that, you know, everyone will enjoy being um watching the show and learning from it. Absolutely. No, people are going to enjoy watching the show. And
0: what's so fun about the study guides is the study guides makes them sound very serious and dry, but they're not mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> they're very playful. They really make you think about interesting parts of the show and bring things to life that you may not have noticed along the way. Uh, I just, I just thought they were incredibly well done, as is your show. Well, Thank you so much. We have been speaking with Samantha Brown of Places to Love on PBS. Watch it. Thanks again, Samantha.
1: Pauline, it was such a pleasure. Nice talking to you.
0: So we started the show with mothers, And now I'm going to speak, oddly enough, to two women in their 20s about grandmothers. But they have the most delightful new book out. It's called Grand Dishes, Recipes and Stories from Grandmothers, of the world. So welcome to the show. We have Anastasia Mieri and Iska Lupton on the line. Welcome, ladies.
2: Hi. Hi.
0: Well, so nice to speak with you both. So l- let me start with Anastasia. Tell me what was the inspiration for this book? And it, it started as an Instagram feed, right?
3: Yeah. So... um I really actually wanted to get a book of my own, yeah, yeah, my Greek grandmother's recipes down because she cooks like no one I've ever known. And I was living in London at the time before I moved to Greece. um, And I just really wanted to be able to cook like her in London. But then I suppose the idea came began with her. And then I watched a sort of Netflix documentary about grandmothers baking bread from all over the world. And I thought it would be amazing if there was a book about granny's recipes from all over. And I guess it started from there. And then we started putting pictures on the Instagram and people started coming to us and kind of nominating their own grandmothers, which was um, really nice.
0: And that's how you got such an incredible range of women. And Iska, your grandmother is featured as well in the book, right? Yes, she is. Where is she from? Tell us a little bit about her story.
2: Well, um, I think we were so excited to get the recipes down, but also realized that if we told the life stories of these ladies as well, then we would have this much richer narrative. And my family has always wanted to capture my granny's story because she had to flee Nazi Germany when she was nine and just had a sort of... A strange existence at the beginning where she had to go to kindergarten to learn English. And I guess my family's never quite managed to get her to tell us everything because she thinks it's not interesting or it's too traumatic. But in the context of being a sort of officially interviewed by Anastasia, she was much more forthcoming about her entire life and her loves and the experiences that she had. Um, and then she made us schnitzel with granny carrots and red cabbage, which is the kind of family staple when we're trying to remember her and her granny and the granny before. Yeah. Well, I have to say, it's uh, that's
0: what makes this book so wonderful. I, I think this is the first cookbook I've ever read and started crying because mm. you bring the stories of these women to life and their struggles and their challenges, and sometimes how they've met them with food, sometimes not. But it, it reminded me of the work of Studs Turple. This felt more like a a travel log or a book of, of social commentary. So I'd love us to, to talk about some of the women in the book. And, and let's talk about the very first one, whose name was Mercedes, so how? why did you
3: decide to start with her and, and tell us a little bit of her story? Well, Mercedes actually came to us because it was completely random. We had cooked with a lady in France and then she had recommended another lady in Madrid in Spain, Clara Maria. And Clara Maria is sort of known as the grand dame of cookery, Spanish cuisine. She sort of brought Spanish cuisine to the masses and she had she hung out with the sort of culinary set of the 1950s, like Elizabeth David and so on. And so we cooked with her and had this amazing experience. And she obviously had a great time because then she recommended that we go and cook with her friend, Mercedes. So we didn't really expect to have another granny when we arrived in Madrid. And actually then we were told, you know what, my friend wants to cook with you as well. So we showed up at her apartment in Madrid And it was just this incredible pattern-on-pattern apartment. We came in from a a sort of pink wallpapered lift. And then um, Mercedes herself was just dressed in the most incredible prints. Um, And she was just this little old lady who used to do the the flowers. She was a florist. She did the flowers and the table settings for the Spanish royals. So Mm -hmm. from really not... um, from not expecting to cook with her, we then had one of the most amazing experiences with Mercedes. Well, I
0: thought she was it. Mercedes who gave the lovely idea of putting vegetables in your flower arrangements. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So cool! That was, she was very cool, that lady. That was brilliant. And then you 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 surprise your guest with the purple of the cabbage and
3: the the dark purple of the eggplant, and then you cook it the next day. <laughs> yeah, it's very zero waste. That's uh, right. Yeah, something that the grannies often sort of live by. This like reuse and recycle
2: kind of idea but i think we chose to start with her because the photos were just incredible of of her against the red backdrop of her house and she put on this most incredible spread like all of her crockery and her flower arrangements were sort of clashing colors but worked perfectly together everything in that house was was amazing and then we had this really funny moment with her because at one point we spotted this tray on the wall that sort of had a children's painting of a plate with cutlery. And we said, what's that for? And she said, well, I, it's what I have my breakfast in bed on. And she said that she has breakfast in bed every single day. And we asked what she had and she said, well, why don't I act it out for you? So then <laughs> later we met in her bedroom and um, she acted out the whole sort of Scenario of how she has breakfast in bed and what she has, and gave us her marmalade recipe. It was very funny. Well, I, and I, it was, it was moving too because
0: she told you why she had breakfast in bed. She has breakfast in bed because when she had her first child, she found the experience so, um, uh, almost bestial in a way to have a yeah. child. I don't know if that's the right <laughs> word, but she wanted some yeah. civilization in her life. And her husband, I think she, was she the one who described him as a golden man? I thought that was so beautiful that, yeah. that she, he allowed her to have breakfast in bed every day. She always had time for herself, even though she had, what, five children or something like that?
2: Yeah. I yeah, remember her she saying, said that giving birth was for cows,
3: which was quite funny. Right?
2: <laughs> Not for <Yeah>. humans. <laughs> and it was oh. just in this amazing Spanish accent, I yeah. think giving birth is for cows. And we just didn't expect it. <laughs> and then you
0: had uh, one woman, Harriet, who told you the most extraordinary kind of heartbreaking story about her marriage. Can, can you retell Harriet's story and, and a little bit about her recipe?
3: Well, we had quite a few stories similar to that of harriet um some some with some of the grandmas were off the record but um Harriet was happy to share. She basically said that her husband was um having an affair with actually someone that she had known, and um I think she kind of tried to stick it out for as long as she could and then she, she did actually go and find her husband with this woman. And her story was all about how she found herself as she got older. And she was from New Orleans and just had, was the most like vivacious, bubbly personality we cooked with her and her friend Anne. And they just were so outgoing that I couldn't ever imagine her and her being in this position as, you know, this, this woman that was being cheated on. And she basically said that, Once her marriage was over, she retrained, she went back to work, she made loads of friends, she had loads of friends in the gay community. And she said that buoyed her and just lifted her up and gave her a new sort of zest for life. And I just find that really inspiring that, you know, after you've had your children, you might have been married for 20, 30 years, but you can still find new things to live for and a new enthusiasm for life. Right. Yeah. I think that
0: was one of the Which ones I cried. Which is very New Orleans. <laughs> yes. Well, And she knew this woman. This woman came on vacation with them and would be at her house for dinner. And she thought it was just a friendship until she she realized it was something more. No, and that story was agonizing. But also, yes, she, she flipped it. And that's what I found in a lot of these stories. A lot of these women went through such difficult time. I mean, you had the Cuban grandmother with who still is living with food insecurity, and mm-hmm. and other women told you very deep things about their lives, but they seem to have come to a place of, of acceptance and resilience and, and had such important, I hate to say it, but lessons to share with you as younger women.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think we just found the generosity of these ladies to share their wisdom was just incredible. And I think, you know, it's kind of the irony of life that you have your greatest wisdom in your later life when you could have really done with it age 20 something. Um, (laughs) But it just meant that they were, you know, there was no question that was, you know, let me think about how to answer that. They just had these incredibly succinct answers based on, all these life experiences that they were so happy to share, and it, yeah, we we learned a lot. We we both were going through lots of different things at the time, and their advice has really changed us in many ways. Well, and you got to travel. You
0: got to travel. Uh, you know, and living through this pandemic and being stuck in one place uh, has made me again grateful for that. But this is really a travel log uh, of going to these different women's homes all over the world. Were there more commonalities or more differences as you went from place to place, would you say?
3: Mm, I think it kind of depends on what we're talking about. In terms of the women themselves and their wisdom, I think... yeah that you you get to a certain age as a woman and uh you've you've learned a lot in life and you're really sure of yourself in a way that perhaps we are not at our age so in that respect yes there was a commonality there and there was also a commonality in the fact that they really take their time in preparing a meal there's um You know, there's no food quite like a grandmother's and that's because a grandma will take her time to cook something delicious. So I think they were the commonalities. And then I don't know, Riska, were there any differences?
2: No, I mean, I feel like we had such different experiences, but in many ways they were the same. Yeah, that we cooked slowly with time, time to speak, time to season um, and then would sit sit at the table for a long time and, and chat. And that was kind of a, a universal experience that we had. Yeah.
0: Now, Anastasia, your, your grandmother is uh, in Greece, where you are right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, she sounds like, I want to say this, I don't want to say this in a negative way. She sounds like a tough bird. She's, she had quite the life. Uh, tell us a little bit about your grandmother
3: and the recipes that she shared with you. She's, yeah it's terrifying. You're allowed to say that. Um, she can be quite, um, she can be, she can be quite harsh. Yeah. So my Yaya has been very strict and stern and quite stoic from forever, forever since I've known her. So for me, the way she shows me her love is through the food that she puts on the table. When, when I used to live in the UK and now I live in Athens, I'll call her up and say, I'm coming. And she'll. the first thing she'll say is, well, what's the first thing that you want me to make for you? What shall I make for lunch? She is an incredible person because she never learned to read or write. She was one of 10 children and basically coming from Corfu, an island in Greece, which was at the time before tourism, mass tourism happened. It was a very agricultural island. So she was basically one of the eldest of the 10 and she got sent out to work in the fields, uh, picking olives and, you know, plant, planting stuff and harvesting food. And that's essentially how she's lived all of her life. One story that I love that she's told me since the book has been published is that she she was expected to go to night school, but obviously she was working all day out on the land. And so one evening she went to school and she was exhausted and the teacher had asked her something. And she didn't, um, she didn't know how to respond. And the teacher sort of threatened to smack her. And so Yaya yeah. bit her hand yeah. <laughs> and then ran away and never went back to school. <laughs> so um, that just gives you a taste of who she is as a person. She's, um, right. yeah, she's a tough one, as you say.
0: Yes, well, you show up once and she says your bum is bigger than it was last time. I thought, wow, that's some grandma. <laughs> Yeah. So in in the course of your travels, you went to Greece. Where was the most far-flung place you went?
3: Um, I would say so I went to Cuba and Mexico and Russia and they were three places that I just <laughs> you know, it was pretty amazing being there for me. What was so amazing? I mean, I, the, we talked a
0: little bit about Cuba. That that was a Another heartbreaking one because you go there and and the woman who is teaching you to cook has has a lot of trouble just getting ingredients together. She's she's living with with real food insecurity. Uh, and, yeah, and she's, so Juana Maria to whip up something delicious. I, Sorry.
3: Yeah. So she. Um, she did whip up something delicious. She made this incredible plantain soup, and it's obviously her staple because she can't really get a hold of anything but plantain. But when I went to Cuba, it was I think when lots of stuff in Venezuela was kicking off as well, and the the blockade from America I think was having a greater impact on people having access to their their food in Cuba. And um, yeah, she had to stand in line for hours and hours just to get. You know the, the very most basic ingredients. So that was, it was really not just heartbreaking, but also interesting to hear about her story because her husband had been involved in the revolution. He was, you know, pro Che, pro Fidel. He was part of the um, the attack on the presidential palace while Batista was in charge. So she almost had this very, she she was really involved in the revolution and what had happened to yeah. Cuba. So hearing about that these historical events from someone firsthand, to me, was fascinating because she lived it. Yeah, that
0: was fascinating. Yeah. And when you went to Russia, did you have a translator? And and what was the Russian experience like?
3: The Russian experience was hilarious. I went with Ella, our photographer, who um, we both both were, were maybe expecting to be greeted in a slightly cooler way because... I guess, I don't know, that's that's just the silly, naive impression that we had of Russians. But actually, we arrived and everyone was so lovely. And even though we didn't speak the language, even the taxi drivers were sort of getting up Google Translate and trying to have us, have conversations with us and were sort of offering us snacks in the taxi. So that wow. sort of was the beginning of the trip. And then when we got to Babushka Vera's house, we actually were introduced to her by her grandson and her grandson's girlfriend. So they were there cooking with us and they did all of the translation. But really, I think when you're cooking... It's kind of a universal language. We, I didn't really need her to tell me what she was doing because obviously I was there cooking with her. But the story, when we sat down to actually do the interview and eat our food, then um, the grandkids helped a lot with the translation. But she was very yeah. warm and... Um, Obviously, lots of gesticulating helps, too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's a delightful book, and I love the way you start it. You start with a quotation. The book is not about what it's like to be old. It's about what it's like to have lived. Uh, and you, you really, really get that when you read this book. And I'm so excited to try some of these recipes because it feels like by cooking them, I'm in certain, in a certain way doing an homage to these fabulous women who you you so bring to life in this book. So many congratulations to you both. and, And thank you so much for appearing on the Frommer
3: Travel Show. Thank you. Thank you so much.